Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte and Willa Walsh, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during a pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. Theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today, we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's Flight Paths Initiative, so listen up. Our stories today are Dodged a Bullet and People Have Their Attitudes. And the Flight Paths Initiative is just one of three branches of the Welcome Project. It combines storytelling, history, geography, and conversations about neighborhood life to explore the changing racial and economic demographics of Gary in northwest Indiana, beginning with the rise of black political power and opportunity in the 60s, the flight of white residents and businesses to the suburbs, and the automation and consequent underemployment of the steel mills. And if you've been listening to the radio show uh, or the podcast, you know that we have played a number of different stories from the Flight Paths Initiatives, um, including stories from Black residents, Latinx residents, and white residents. Today, both storytellers are white, and one is a former resident of Gary, while one is still currently residing in Gary. Uh, The former resident grew up there and will be speaking of approximately the 1960s, and our second storyteller arrived in Gary in the 90s. So I think that will be an interesting thing for us to notice and pay attention to the time period um, of the stories. So with that, we'll start with the first storyteller who is speaking of growing up in Gary in the 60s. This one's called Dodged a Bullet. I took uh, music lessons from a guy that lived in downtown Gary, so I had to get on the bus and go to downtown Gary. Gary from the steel mills till about 9th Avenue, almost 100% white. The downtown shopping area, which went from about 4th and Broadway till 9th Avenue, uh, that was a mixed area, very commingled down there, no big deal. But when you passed the Little Calumet River, which was around 30th Avenue, it was almost 100% black. And my bus went down Grant Street, and it was a kind of a ghetto, if you want to call it that. It just looked rough to me. Yeah, I was anxious. I don't know why I was anxious. I guess everything just looked so distressed. It, it kind of scared me. I think that I honestly believed that there was just a cultural difference, that this is the way black people lived as opposed to the way white people lived. But I do have to tell you one story. I had taken the bus down to get my trumpet lesson, and apparently when I was sitting in the bus, somehow my 15 cents to get home fell out of my pocket. Now, I could have asked my instructor for 15 cents, but about that time I was getting a little bullheaded. So I walked home through the heart of the black neighborhood. I was scared to death. I I don't think I thought the black people liked the white people. But you know what? Even though I was carrying a a trumpet, something somebody could have clobbered me over the head and stole, nobody said a word to me. That walk convinced me that these people aren't evil or demons or out to pick on on white people. They they didn't even look at me funny. It was kind of like I just 
walked on home. And I think that kind of changed my view on how things were. Like, hey, it really would be okay to go down there. But I think I felt like maybe a little bit of me said, boy, you really dodged a bullet getting through that, you know, without getting beat up or something like that. But, you know, but on the other hand, I think it did change me a, a little bit. I think if I ever saw a black person walking through Glen Park, that I would go out of my way to make sure that person got safely past my neighborhood. So up until he walks through the neighborhood after his lessons, my question is, like, how does he typically experience what he calls the black neighborhood in Gary? And like, what is his uh, perception of it? Um, I would say that there's a story that's being told like in the air (laughs) whether that's like stuff he's hearing from people he lives with in Glen Park his neighborhood or something he's picking up in terms of like the media um that the black neighborhood is scary and um then that seems to be confirmed by him by like what he sees in terms of like the way it appears Mm -hmm. like run down And he has this uh, connection or assumption that, well, that's the way black people live. They, I don't know, like they, (laughs) he doesn't say they enjoy living that way, but something, it's like this suggestion of there's something about their character. And so I think because they have a character that wants to live in a rundown neighborhood, that somehow also implies they're scary. Mm. Did that answer? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, because I was just thinking like, Well, he says that he's, like, walking through the neighborhood, right? But his bus goes through the neighborhood. So in my mind, this is something that, like, he has, like, a white resident in Gary. You typically, you're only going to pass it on the bus or you're only going to pass it as you're driving through. And so there's this weird separation that happens to where it's, like, you're never really in the neighborhood experiencing the neighborhood. So it's so easy to let these sort of, like, outside assumptions, like, whether it's, like, parents or people in your neighborhood or the media telling you like this is a scary place like having this coloration on it and so when you're only ever passing through it you never get to experience like what it actually is so there's this sort of like build up of like here's what I think it is and like I'm only ever on the bus so I think that's what it it becomes this big moment for him when he actually like gets out of the bus and like is actually just walking through the neighborhood I think there's like a difference that happens for him I mean, and one one thing to to ask ourselves is, does he actually really experience the neighborhood even when he's in it? But it's pretty clear that he's experiencing enough of it in a way that changes the preceding perception that he had. So I'm looking forward to unpacking that a little bit. It actually makes sense to me to actually bring up this concept of terrain versus map now. So uh, before we started the show today, Willow and I were talking about... Um, This is a a teaching that I received from a Buddhist teacher, like in a a workshop that she offered, where she was trying to help us understand that the terrain would be the world as it exists, like uh, even apart from any individual person, just the kind of fundamental reality of the the world. And then um, humans have this quirky ability um, to place a map over that. So maps are useful. Uh, We need them to simplify the terrain in order to navigate our way from point A to point B. 
So if I need to get from Valparaiso to Chicago, it's not going to help me to see everything about the terrain. I actually just need to see, like, where's the entrance ramp onto I-94 and where's the exit ramp I'm going to need. So it really simplifies and generalizes the rich, dynamic nature of the, the terrain that's underneath it. And I think what you're already pointing out is that for him, he had a map that he'd been given um, that was um, continually affirmed by the fact that the bus, which would take him from the South Glen Park neighborhood through the black mid mid central uh, mid district of um, central neighborhood where the black residents lived into the heart of downtown where he said it's a little bit more integrated. And so all he had was the map. There was nothing to test it against mm. until he got he got off the bus. <laughs> um, so that might be useful for us as we're kind of unpacking things today to like which map is being used when and does anybody ever get close to just actually experiencing the terrain? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, too, because I think like what you brought up is like, did he actually experience the terrain by walking through the neighborhood? And I and I guess maybe it's not even like one way or the other. It's not like you're either seeing the map or you're seeing the terrain. It's mm-hmm. maybe you're taking the map, but now you're walking it. So you're going a little bit slowly and you're filling out a little more of the yeah. terrain as you go. So I think this is maybe like the first step for him to like. Maybe my version of this has been a little one-sided, and he's just bringing a little bit more flavor into it. So yeah, I think it's I think it's the tip of the iceberg for him. I yeah. think. <laughs> I I'm wondering about the the use of the term ghetto in this context because that sounds like a map to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was wondering, um, I don't know. I'm so fascinated by this storyteller in general because of the way he'll say something and then he'll qualify it. So, like, he has a sense, I think, of, like, maybe other people are going to see this differently. So, I mean, it's a sort of self-awareness of the map that's a little bit unusual. Um, Anyway, he says it was kind of a ghetto, if you want to call it that. And how do you, what do you think the map is doing there? Is it something more than we've already talked about, or is it just reiterating things we've already said? Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, he's calling it a ghetto, and I think, like, I mean, that's, like, an actual real thing, but I think it, it has a such, like, a pejorative term, right? So it it has a lot on it that I think is more of a map view of the neighborhood, and so I think maybe either just by lived experience, because, right, this is, like, 50, 60 years ago, or just maybe through that experience, he, he's opening it up a little bit more and says, you know, if you want to call it that. So I, I don't know if we know what that means when he says that, but I think there's there's a little bit of a room, right? He could have just yeah. said it was a total ghetto, it was awful. Yeah. But he, he leaves a little bit of like some some skepticism in there. So I think there's like something changed. Yeah. Like uh, he might know that that's the term was used at the time he was a kid, ghetto, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he's kind of aware that that pejorative connotation that's grown over time makes it maybe offensive to say in a certain way. I feel like in the 90s, we heard the term inner city all the time, and it was supposed to be a friendlier way, but it was actually the same map, so it doesn't really, it's still like a, they call it a dog whistle now, right? Like, it's just a way of masking in some ways, something you don't want to say out loud. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, you're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with Willa Walsh and Allison Schutte. And today we're sharing stories again from our Flight Paths Initiative. And this first storyteller is a, a white resident who grew up in Glen Park, uh, which at the time um, would have been completely white, segregated from the, the rest. Well, um, the Gary itself was a segregated city. And he's talking about um, taking the bus from his neighborhood downtown, which takes him through the, the black neighborhood or um, midtown or central district. Where should we go? Well, I'm, I almost want to stay on this just a little bit because okay. I'm thinking about what came to mind for me is like you mentioned I-94. And I, and I wonder if this experience like in the 60s is kind of like this like microcosm of how we as Valpo residents experience Gary today. Like, so in this time, right, Glen Park would have been the white neighborhood. And so in between neighborhoods, there's a sort of segregation. But I think because of white flight and like today and like 2021, it's, it's, it's similar and that Gary itself has become this sort of neighborhood that people mm. don't enter. And so I wonder if like, we as like white Valpo residents kind of still feel this way, not towards a specific neighborhood, but towards yeah. Gary on a whole. Yeah. And like what, I don't know, that just kind of perplexes me, right? Because as our storyteller did, you know, he would get on a bus and just see that neighborhood just driving by. But I think we do that today, right? You get on I-94 and you just go right yeah. past Gary. You're never really going through it. Yeah. And so you just get this like really minimal understanding of Gary. And so I want, it's just, it. I don't know, it kind of blows my mind. Like, is this is still kind of how we're treating Gary, just like as a whole instead of a neighborhood these days. It's not, I don't know, I, I don't feel like we've we've grown at all, or have we? I don't know. Yeah, well, I think our, I don't know, this feels maybe too easy, but I feel like our technology or like what we value uh, like as a country in terms of like speed and efficiency, that means like instead of buses, we've got, interstates that allow us to drive 75 80 some some people are driving 100 miles an hour on that interstate you know so like in terms of because but earlier you said one of the things that benefited the storyteller is that when he got off the bus and had to walk he had to slow down but um those interstates which were designed to help people move around more quickly and to avoid like places where people lived I, that just takes away that that opportunity to really slow down. So what if somebody decided to drive into Chicago from Valparaiso on Highway 12 or 20? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you're going to be back to the pace of the bus mm -hmm. at that point, which today might be informative to you in some ways. Although I don't know like, if people have their maps, they might still see only what they expect to see. Yeah, I think about people going to like real cats games or things. Yeah. Every time you know, I go to Gary, it's like, oh, lock your car, don't be there at night. So I think there's still there's still the the safety of being in a vehicle and not like walking around. But maybe that's a start still. But I still think that's maybe just the beginning of the map still. Yeah. I wanted to talk about so if he when he the storyteller when he's walking through the neighborhood home slowing down and starting to realize there's more to, to, to the terrain than he initially had thought. We've talked about like how that's a window that opened for him. And he talks about it as a kind of change too. 
And again, I'm interested in the way he kind of goes back and forth at the end of the story. So how how solid does the change feel? Like even to the, the storyteller himself, when he's like telling this story some 40, 50 years later, um, you know, he starts by saying, and, and I think that kind of changed my view. So it's, I think kind of <laughs> changed my view like hey it really would be okay to go down there but I think I felt like maybe <laughs> a little bit of me said boy you really dodged a bullet but you know on the other hand I think it did change me a little bit <laughs> so I don't know what are you making of all of that sort of back and forth in his story I think it's it, it. I think the walk initiated something for him. So I think this still feels like maybe the walk wasn't enough to fully fill out that terrain as it could have. But I think it started something in that he's he really. I noticed that too. He's just kind of going back and forth, and so I mean he says like, "Hey, it would really be okay to go down there." So like that's one part of him that maybe was only initiated through the walk. Yeah. A, a smaller part still says you dodged a bullet. But I think maybe that's smaller since after he experienced the walk. And then he felt like it changed him a little bit. So I think it's just the experience started this sort of like internal reflection on like how he, he, he was thinking of things and kind of confronted by like how things actually were when he just walked down the street and nothing happened. So I think it, it started things for him. Yeah, I guess I, um, I wonder since he's still have he still seems to be in that place as an interviewee reflecting on it 40 years later I, I think it makes me feel like he didn't have many more opportunities to get closer to the terrain because mm-hmm. it feels like that initiation is still on I don't even want to say on pause but still like the place where he is I noticed that with the the language he used of those people um, that walk convinced me that these people aren't evil or demons or out to pick on white people. And the use of that, these people mm-hmm. or those mm-hmm. people, you know, when we're still in the us, them thing, it, it indicates like we haven't fully encountered people yet. We're still at some distance mm-hmm. from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wondered too, like, in terms of it changing things for him, I don't know. It feels like, I don't know, like it did create this opportunity to where he could start to change some of those things that he was hearing, maybe from parents or media or whatnot, that this was, you know, a bullet that he dodged and he had anxiety going into it. But part of alleviating some of that anxiety was actually experiencing it. But I wonder if because he wasn't able to have more opportunities like that, he wasn't able yeah. to overcome that anxiety of like, I mean, what I'm thinking here is like, what is he afraid of? It's like, well, he's afraid of like somebody clobbering him over the head and stealing his trumpet. Yeah. So it's like, okay, walk one, that didn't happen. So the, you know, the little anxiety gremlin in your brain that tells you like, oh, this is going to be horrible. But when it turns out to not be so horrible, I don't know, I feel like if he were to do that multiple times, just start walking home from his lessons to his house, like I think more would have changed for him. But I think there's a problem that we have in that 
it doesn't feel good to sort of like have anxiety about something and like actually go out and do it. And so there is still like, like he says, like there's still a little part of me that says, boy, I dodged a bullet. But you know, a bull- like it seems more like a surefire thing at the beginning. Like I am dodging a bullet just by walking through here. Like I barely scathed by. <laughs> but I wonder if like if you do 50 walks, does it feel like you dodge a bullet every single time? Or does it just yeah. feel like, okay, like this is just how it is. So I wonder if there's something too like challenging that inner anxiety of like having these experiences and just opening yourself up to them and continuing to go on walks to sort of like create this like I mean I guess that would be creating the terrain right it's and it's sort of pulling down that map a little bit more so that you can experience more of it that way it feels more I don't know fuller and nuanced I think that's super important um to recognize because I I when I imagine myself into situations where I've I've had this sort of uh, opening that that we're talking about for him where there's still this part of me like that that feels like the dodged dodged a bullet um so I, I still have that anxiety like but i had this counter experience and in the moment i have a lot of confidence like oh yeah this is all okay but just give me a day away from that and because the dodged a bullet voice is still there like the anxiety is actually what comes up first not the confidence that i'm going to be okay so mm-hmm. If I'm not willing to feel that anxiety, like I'm not gonna necessarily do that walk again. <laughs> uh-huh. So if we're not ready, like if we don't understand how anxiety and discomfort work for us, then then we're probably just gonna fall back on what's comfortable and familiar. I mean, that's a very normal, I think it's wired into our brains. So I'm not even sure it's just enough to say it's normal. I think it's physiologically kind of a compulsion mm-hmm. that you have to actually identify and then choose a different <laughs> choose a different kind of approach. Um, you're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with Willa Walsh and Allison Schutte. And we're talking about a <clears throat> storyteller, who, a white storyteller who grew up in Glen Park in Gary and how his experience of um, his assumptions about black and white neighborhoods were opened up, challenged um, by the fact that he had to walk home one day from a, a music lesson. I, I can't help but there's something in that last sentence of the story. Um, you know, so the we've been talking about the implication for him that he will have a different attitude towards the black neighborhood but he also is talking here about the implication for black people in his neighborhood and how he might react differently if he were to see a black person in Glen Park so I think if I ever saw a black person this is the storyteller speaking I think if I ever saw a black person walking through Glen Park that I would go out of my way to make sure that person got safely past my neighborhood I just feel like there's a lot on there's a lot implied in that. <laughs> and I wonder what you are making or how you're unpacking that last bit. Yeah, so I think a couple things happened, right? So, I mean, through his experience walking through and being like, oh, I, I'm actually okay. I think there's a want to maybe 
extend that experience too. So if like somebody who wasn't from his neighborhood, like a black resident in Gary, he would want to make sure that they also had that experience thinking that, I mean, he's saying that just by his walk, he's he realizes that like, oh, these people aren't evil, these people aren't demons. So I, it, one can only wonder what he thinks that black people think of white people. Yeah. So the fact that he would maybe also want somebody to have that experience as well to be like, oh, this wasn't so terrible walking through this white neighborhood. I don't, I don't know how that would have actually gone over. But I think that brings us to the other part of this implication here that it's like, there is some something happening with like the safety of the neighborhood. There's this acknowledgement yeah. of like somebody might need to be, you know, a black person might need to be looked out for if they're walking yeah. through my neighborhood. So it's kind of funny that he he talks about, you know the black neighborhood is like being a ghetto or being like kind of rough. But at the same time, he acknowledges that if a black person were to walk through his neighborhood, their safety could be in danger. Yeah. So I think that's kind of interesting that it just feels, I don't know, dangerous on both sides. Yeah. That he's kind of noticing. But that you wouldn't, as a white person in this case, question necessarily that your neighborhood was dangerous because you never experience it as dangerous and you also I mean I this is my speaking not the storyteller speaking but like I if I like I I sense that um the 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 belief of white people and I guess I'm speaking from what I think about for America Mm. is that we're not violent you know we worry about people of color being violent, but actually, <laughs> like I, I think we might be the ones that are actually doling out more of the violence. But we don't see ourselves that way unless, like I think this other opening that he got is like to actually put himself in the shoes of a black person walking through a white neighborhood and realizing, like, oh yeah, this is going to feel dangerous. And that means, by extension, that we, as white people, can actually be violent. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not associated with, supposedly, like the way our neighborhood <laughs> looks. So it can't really be about like individual moral character. Then it's really more about something systemic, something social that's being you know, communicated and reiterated. So... It's just one tiny sentence, but I feel like it really opens up awareness of like the social dynamics in a way that I don't always see recognized. Yeah. I wonder if that's a good segue into our next story too, which talks a little bit, which acknowledges more of that systemic perceptions of Gary a little bit more. Yeah, okay, so let's go ahead and play People Have Their Attitudes. Um, and again, this is a, a white resident who moves to Gary in the 90s. The reason I moved to Gary was because it was an assignment, my first assignment out of the seminary. When we would travel as children between uh, Western Canada, Regina, Saskatchewan, where I grew up, we would drive along I-94 and we would come through Gary. And it was, uh, so this is the late 70s, early 80s, and it was really, really polluted and just one of those places that was just kind of notorious among us. So I just assumed that it was a joke, but that was what my assignment was. 
There was a woman who lived in Crown Point or was from Crown Point. Yeah, so there was this lady at the church where I'd done my internship who had raised her family in Crown Point. And she came the weekend that I was there with the, the Northwest Indiana phone book map photocopied, and she had highlighted all of the neighborhoods that I could live in and be as far away from Gary as possible. And I thought to myself, if this is the expectation that people have of a new pastor coming to Gary, I need to live in Gary. Right, and as part of your work at Our Savior, you had some of the youth group over to the apartment for a pizza party? I mean, just happened to overhear one of the moms saying to, I think might have been her husband, oh, boy, I had no idea he lived in the ghetto. People have their attitudes. But Miller was nice, and lots of the people that we hung out with in those days were pretty new to the, to Miller. Everybody was convinced that, you know, this was the year that everything was going to turn around, or this new development was going to come in, or this new mayor was going to come in, and everything was going to change, and everybody's investments were going to pay off. And I mean, it, it never happened at that pace, though there has been kind of an incremental... Um, I think there has been a march forward and upward mm-hmm, mm-hmm. over the course of time. Mm-hmm. But as far as the big switch being flipped, I haven't seen it yet. No, no. And and the, the racism that continues to exist in Northwest Indiana that gets in the way of Gary's redevelopment, I think, continues to be a really big issue. That just brings me back to the reactions that I would get from people in the broader church, you know, other pastors who knew that I had been in Gary and had been in Gary a long, long time and would assume that that was as the result of some deep, deep commitment. And I don't want to diss that because we were really committed to the relationships in that congregation and to the, working in that neighborhood and helping that community really, really thrive. But the talk was always like, you know, we were making these huge sacrifices and yet, you know, we lived in a little house adjacent to a national park a mile from Lake Michigan and 32 miles and an easy train ride from the Art Institute in downtown Chicago. It was not, it was hardly, <laughs> hardly a hardship um, in spite of what people thought. You've received calls right. to other places. Right. And there have other been a really, number of them. Uh, really, really nice, nice places, places, right? <laughs> and we would turn them down yeah. and we would laugh. Yeah. We decided to stay in Gary yeah. again. This is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. You're here with Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh. Today on Listen Up, we're discussing stories from our Flight Paths Initiative. Uh, both of our storytellers are white residents today. One um, that you we talked about in the first half of the hour as a former resident who grew up in Glen Park during the 60s. And this storyteller that we've just heard from is um, someone who moved to the region in the 90s. And I should mention that the, the other voice that's in the interview is his, uh, is his wife and that uh, we're really grateful that interview took place as a part of StoryCorps um, Chicago helping us out with the Flight Paths Initiative And so um, just a shout out to them for helping us with those interviews. So where should we begin unpacking this one? So there's a lot of places to start, but maybe it was like the one thing I noticed. Okay, so what brought him to Gary was he was on an, an assignment as a pastor, not necessarily sure how that works. But I noticed there's this interesting thing that happens at the beginning in terms of like choice and and having choice 
like mm. no choice and having choice. So like I think of it as an assignment and he said he assumed it was a joke, but it was actually his assignment. So there's there's a kind of uh, lack of decision that happens there in terms of like, well, I have to be in this area. Yeah. But then he makes choices beyond that. Yeah. So he, he could have chosen like the woman who brought in the map of all of, of the other places to stay. and like he could have chosen to be as far away from Gary as he possibly could but but he decided not to so I don't know that's something that really stood out to me here as like making choices within not having a choice well and isn't it just so interesting too that I-94 comes up yep (laughs) I mean you were mentioning that in the, the first half hour of like this is the way in which we see Gary if we don't live there, mm-hmm. and it's this blur. For him, he has this extra detail of the pollution that was a part of the city from the steel mills at the time. Apparently, the EPA hadn't gotten <laughs> gotten on that yet, um, and so that that map again, like it had, it was like notorious to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think then it's really interesting to think of that phone book map oh my gosh (laughs) yeah like I had totally forgotten there's an actual map that's in here and the woman who is trying to make sure that he gets to live in a a good neighborhood or a safe neighborhood um is using like a map to do that and I think to your point that all of Gary then has become the bad neighborhood Mm -hmm. right Mm mm-hmm because she's pointing out other places to live, like Crown Point. So did you get a sense from him of, of why the choice? So you said, like, he wasn't given a choice because the assignment was like, hey, you're going to go do your internship in Gary as a pastor, a new pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he chooses to live in Gary. So how did you understand that that choice? Yeah, so, well, he says, you know, and, I, and I'm not quite too sure about this either, but I think it's basically the woman who comes in with the map. And I think it's, I just, just the thought of that is absolutely hilarious <laughs> to me. Maybe it's because like, I don't know, like MapQuest maybe wasn't around in like the 90s yeah. or something. I mean, I guess True he still that. printed it out, but <laughs> it's like <laughs> to go through and like photocopy a map and like spend the time like highlighting parts of it that like you could live in. And I just think that characterizes this person so much. Like, I know who this woman is. I feel like we've all met this woman oh. to some degree. And it's just, <laughs> and so I think that he kind of sees this map and sees this woman showing him the places, you know, he could live instead of the places assigned. And I think that kind of triggers something for him. Like, why am I avoiding the place that I've been assigned? And so I'm not necessarily sure if he knows, but I think he at least acknowledges, like, that there's an avoidance happening yeah. here. And it's like, he, he you know calls out, if this is the expectation that people have of Gary, then I should probably be in Gary. And so I think it goes back to that map versus terrain, right? He literally, in this scenario, rejects the map yeah. and decides to like, d- like delve into the actual terrain to experience it for himself and not just rely on these perceptions that people are giving him of Gary. Yeah, or even his old perception himself yeah. that he has. Yeah. Um, I was also interested because the term ghetto came up again. again. Mm -hmm. Do you do you see that as the same usage from the previous story or is there some additional, I don't know, insight or nuance we could take away from it? Well, I 
I mean, in terms of the first story, I mean, I do see a connection in that the the way the first storyteller uses it, he's talking about a you know, he said he called it a ghetto, but then he kind of retracted and said, if you want to call it that. Yeah. So I think there is some, you know, acknowledgement that that's like, this is how if you're only seeing Gary as the map, you know, that's how you're going to see Gary. You know, a lot of people call Gary the ghetto. They call Gary a bunch of different things. And so if you're only existing in that bit, then that's the word you're going to use. But our storyteller at the beginning, our other storyteller talked about, well, when he walked through, think that changed things for him yeah but with this person in the story who just the woman who turns to her husband and said boy I had no idea he lived in the ghetto I think it's it's used in a similar context in that she hasn't had the experience to to get into the terrain at all she's still operating from the map version of Gary yeah and so that's that's what she sees when she's in Gary although interestingly to be able to say that for him to overhear it it's at his apartment in Miller so she's in the terrain quote unquote she's in the terrain but like not seeing it and he he brushes it off as people have their attitudes I I thought that was very quick you know mm-hmm. like um but maybe it's interesting because he doesn't want to dwell on and amplify that picture right because he goes on to talk about Miller being nice lots of people we hung out with were pretty new to Miller. Everybody was convinced this was the year everything was going to turn around. So there's some new development. So it sounds like um, he might be unwilling to to place too much emphasis on that kind of really prescribed understanding of the neighborhood in order to demonstrate like more aspects of the terrain that she was mm-hmm. not necessarily mm-hmm. able to see at that moment in time. Um, I I saw this conversation about development and redevelopment and whether it worked or didn't work as um, a sort of response to earlier he had called Gary notorious. Like that was the sort of familial understanding of the city. Mm -hmm. So I saw that all this talk of redevelopment as a kind of response to Gary being considered notorious. I don't... Does that seem accurate to you? I think so. Actually, for me, it just seemed like this sentiment in general, like everybody feeling like, oh, Gary's going to come around. Gary's going to, you know, something needs to happen. It's just it feels like in different formats, this is something I've heard over and over and over again from other people that live in the area. It's just like something's going to happen with Gary. It's going to, you know, his wife calls it like the switch being flipped. There's this constant idea of like, Gary needing to like morph into something that it isn't already and I don't know whether that's like a remorphing into like what it was in the 60s or something because that's how people know Gary but just this I get so aggravated when I hear this statement of just like something needs to happen to Gary to make it more I don't know inviting or okay for white people or for it to not be considered like a ghetto by white people I suppose but I don't know that 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 for me that was something like when you're talking about um, like we were having a conversation about like healing versus fixing and this idea that it's like Gary isn't good enough as it is and it doesn't offer enough as it is so we we constantly look for Gary to be better oh like we hear other interviewees talking about oh I can't wait for Gary to come back I'd be so excited to see Gary the way it once was and so there's this 
I don't know, this continuing idea of like, like it's not, I don't know, like, I guess maybe it's a lack of understanding the current terrain of Gary and only understanding a former terrain of Gary. Mm. And so it's kind of dismissing what happened after the 60s and dismissing Gary altogether. But I don't know, it just, ugh, it just really grinds my gears. And I think he kind of doubles <laughs> down on that a little bit when he says like the other pastors who are saying like, you know, would assume that he's in Gary because of some like deep, deep commitment. And I think we have had some storytellers and I think of like a couple that were in Miller that kind of talk about that. Like I never left, my family always stayed here. And so I think there definitely is that sentiment, but I think he's kind of describing this as like, you know, I don't know, I'm I'm here because I'm going to stand my ground and like, I believe in Gary and I'm going to stay in Gary and that's great. But it's so absurd to other people for them to think that he would want to be here, that he would want to be in Gary as it is, and it has a lot of amenities to it. So I think there's something there in terms of Gary doesn't need to go anywhere. Like, it could go somewhere. Some things could happen, but it doesn't need to have this, like, huge revival to swarm in the masses of surrounding cities like Valpo. I think there's something to just acknowledging what Gary already has to offer, which is... Mm -hmm close proximity to Chicago or you know, a national park. park. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're listening to WVLP. This is Listen Up. Welcome Project Radio. You're here with me, Allison Schutte, and Willow Walsh. Today we've been talking about some of our pl- flight, flight path stories. Um, and this current story that we're discussing is from a white resident who is living in Miller Beach and moved to the area as a pastor in the 90s. So we've been thinking most recently here about um, how he and his wife during the 90s noticed that there were other people that had recently moved to Miller Beach, which is a neighborhood of Gary, and um, there was talk about uh, change coming and investments paying off. And we've been trying to understand that a little bit better, this, this uh, I don't know, I guess another way of talking about it is gentrification, although they never use that that term. But I feel like some of your grinding of the gears might be related to <laughs> what we white progressives usually look down on in um, gentrification. I wanted to uh, give a little bit more context for the healing versus fixing um, to see if that's useful to us here. So this is actually language I got from that same Buddhist teacher who talked about the map and the terrain. Um, And she pointed out that uh, fixing is when something's broken and you want to put it back the way it was. I also think it's interesting to notice that another definition of fix is to like make rigid and keep in place. So there's no flexibility anymore. And I, upon my like my own reflection about that is like I I often fall into that fixing mode like I I want to fix things, and I want to make them good and permanently good, <laughs> um, and usually it's like for the benefit of people. So I don't think the impulse is bad. However, um, her instruction is like the world, the terrain, is far too dynamic to pin down and hold in place. So even if you were able to bring something to a kind of fixed fixed 
like as in a, a healthy place, like that's still impermanent. So she offers as a, a different kind of framework or mentality, a healing mentality. So you can approach the terrain, which is bound to change with a sense of um, like, what does it mean to hold it with compassion and see what's possible given the current conditions such that people can be connected to each other and to their world in that moment. Again, it will be fluid and it will change. She used the analogy of, um, well, it was an example. She had actually uh, heard from a friend who had a daughter that was an addict and the, the mother had tried everything to get her daughter clean, sober. None of it was working. And eventually the mother, through her practice, had worked herself to understand like, okay, if I can't fix my daughter, I'm just going to go be with her. And so the image was of her sitting with her daughter on a park bench where her daughter would oftentimes go and just being with her, not trying to change her, not trying to fix her, even though it left a lot of heartbreak for the mother because she knew her daughter was hurting herself. But the connection between them was possible and real, even in spite of the fact that um, suffering was happening or people were going to be hurt on both sides, mother and daughter. So um, I think it's interesting to try to bring that framework to issues of systemic injustice. at the same time, I always find myself just, it's like the fixed mode just is so strong. Like I would want to see Gary flourish, not necessarily for white residents, <laughs> although there's lots of, I mean, there are white residents there who would benefit, um, but for the black residents that are there. And so I, I think the part of the redevelopment push that I can understand is that there there are people suffering right now. Like residents don't have good schools for their kids. They they don't have um, good uh, like road repair. You know, like I think about that a lot with all the weather we've had and how here in Valpo, like there was plows and salt all the time. And I'm like, I don't know how many like which of the surrounding cities have that much attention because we're a well-to-do city. Um, anyway, so I do find myself getting stuck on that, but I am really interested in the language you were using of, like, why do we need to change Gary? Or is there a way to want the city to flourish without thinking that it's broken or there's something wrong about it as it is now? Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the tricky thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that's a lot of like does that bring anything yeah like so I'm, I'm wondering too like this the, the healing aspect of it if instead of like I mean I've heard people in Valpo say you know you know again can't wait for Gary to come back or something to that degree but I wonder if there's some sort of like acceptance that we have to have that it's like it's not 1960 and I don't think we should want it to be 1960 yeah, yeah. and we, we've grown from here so it's the sort of the sort of, you know, instead of 
blaming, I think a lot of people blame Gary, right? It's like, why don't they just do the X, Y, Z and fix it themselves? Even though, of course, there's no tax base there. So it's relatively (laughs) impossible to do that. But, you know, so it's just like, if there's a healing aspect, if there's an acceptance that we can have with our neighbors in Gary, then maybe we can have less of a, you know, it's your fault, it's your fault, sort of a blame thing, but maybe it's a, it's a, we can come together and it's just like, here we are in 2021, this is in 1960. How do we move forward together in a way that everybody thrives in this region? And so I think with that, if we can open ourselves up to that sort of, you know, getting outside of that fixing mentality of like trying to change things to be something, you know, they're not or better for some people, you know, how do we, how do we just say this is this is good the way it is but let's let's focus on the things like the schools and the roads and how do we connect in a way that's i don't know that doesn't polarize us and i know that's almost impossible right. to do right now. right now so but it's just i i don't know I, i'm really interested in those moments that we can have that kind of gets out of that polarization and and how do we have the experiences that we can come together And what does that even look like? Like, I don't know how to do that for myself, but I think for me, I know it's like filling out more of the terrain of Gary and moving away from my map view. And so I think that's step one. Yeah. And then from there, I think, you know, you can take down some of the walls, take down some of the blame and start to work, you know, more regionally. I think that's what I would love to see for Northwest Indiana, just working more regionally and not in our silo little cities. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I do think that the development slash redevelopment approach is often map based because it's investors Mm -hmm. typically from outside the city who have a particular view of, you know, what its attributes are that if they could tap into those particular attributes, then X, Y, Z, build it and they will come kind of thing. Mm That's definitely still a map view, though. It's like not necessarily looking at everything in the terrain and who Gary is, what Gary is as a city. It's only wanting to sketch out the parts that would benefit the, the investor. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think you're like if we go back to the concept of healing, if the starting point is how do we connect to each other, then we're really trying to put aside the map for the time being, or actually maybe we would at, we would have to look at the maps we've been using <laughs> so that we can see how they got in the way of connecting. Um, and then from the place of connection, we can look around again at the conditions that they are now. We, we're not in the 1960s, we're in 2021. So if we're connecting now, then what's possible and maybe the development of the city is more organic um, than it is imposed from mm-hmm. the outside. As if you're imposing things, you're you're already in map and fixing world, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you're showing up and connecting and allowing things to to grow and flourish, that's a, a totally different move. Which I feel like this storyteller is naming, right? Because He's rejecting those people who um, see that he's been in Gary a long time and assume it's the result of some deep, deep commitment, which I think is so interesting because typically uh, 
like we would love hearing somebody think like that we're deeply committed. <laughs> that sounds like a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this storyteller recognizes that there's there's racism at the heart of that actually because it's this assumption that it has to be a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think what the storyteller teaches us is like you can be committed to a place without sacrificing yourself to be committed. So he sees because he's connected first, I think, to the people and the place, uh, he's able to see Lake Michigan. He's able to see the access to Chicago. He's able to put that alongside of the fact that he wants to stay, even though they both they both say at the end, like, you know, some of the calls that he's received as a pastor is to other really nice places. <laughs> So there's opportunities elsewhere that are enticing, um, and yet they're they're deciding to stay in Gary again. Mm-hmm. And it's a total flip, right? Like at the beginning, it was like, is this a joke that I'm going to be in Gary? And right? then because <laughs> of filling out that terrain and building those relationships, by the end, it's it's a full fledged choice. You know, I want to be here. Yeah. That's what I love about it. But I also wonder, too, like, he does mention that, like, he calls out, like, racism in Northwest Indiana Mm -hmm. gets in the way of new development in Gary. And I wonder, like, how you see that playing out, like, what he means by that. Yeah, I mean, I think we probably need to bring outside understandings of uh, racism in Northwest Indiana to fully flesh that out. But I I really feel like it is the fact that... um, we as a region haven't really taken stock of everything that, um, see, I, I, like all of the different factors, circumstances, conditions from the federal level to the local level to the social level to the political level that really led to the white flight from Gary, the backlash to the civil rights movement the deindustrialization of the mills um, and the role of, of racism. So some of that, like the deindustrialization of the mills might sound like it's not about race and maybe that isn't. Maybe it's about globalism and how the economy could no longer just be a national economy. But the move of white families to the suburbs and pretty much the uh, ex- excluding black residents from doing that and we, you had mentioned earlier the tax base following the resident. I mean, all, like all of that, like if we don't own that and if we don't own that, that has its really deep roots in the fact that white families didn't want to live with black families and they were encouraged in that fear, supported in that fear. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't look at that, then I feel like, um, like we really can't, see Gary redeveloped because it's always going to get in the way. Mm -hmm. It's either going to like flip from being a predominantly black city to like somehow the magical redevelopment happens and all the white residents (laughs) move back Uh and take over, which is the gentrification model that we're kind of used to. Um, Or it's not going to happen because uh, of of racism. And, And maybe that's something additional like, so I've been talking about, like, needing to own the history of racism in order to see Gary flourish again. But he could also just be talking about something, like, similar to our white uh, first storyteller, 
where there's still assumptions about black families, black individuals, and black communities, that you can't safely invest in them, that they are scary, dangerous places. Mm-hmm. Like that's still a, a racism that's operating very actively in society today. And so it's going to keep people from seeing the terrain of Gary. They're only going to see that map and be like, no, not going to take my business investments there. Um, so I, I, yeah, I guess I would say those two things, both historical and current. Um, did you see other? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think it like it becomes this this obstacle to the healing, right? To like see each other as as neighbors and want to connect and not have to polarize so much. I think you know we already have that sort of like us them between the cities, but I think racism just cultivates that even more between that us them, especially like in our first story. You know, our storyteller just talks about, like, going through a black neighborhood and really feeling like these people, you know, you're so alienated from them. And I think, you know, if Gary was a predominantly white community, maybe we'd think a little bit differently about it. No, I mean, there's, I'm sure there'd be some classism involved there. But, you know, I think it just becomes one more barrier to overcome. So as we think about not wanting to, to fix things and, and wanting to heal, kind of acknowledging that, like, I think part of healing is maybe letting go of some of those anxieties, mm-hmm. you know, opening yourself up to creating that terrain, but also acknowledging, like, where are these anxieties coming from? Mm-hmm. Why do I not want to open myself up to the terrain? And is it because I'm afraid? And then maybe why am I afraid? Yeah. <laughs> How do I make myself not afraid? Yeah. You know, kind of going through that. So, yeah, so I think it just becomes one more step in the process as we learn to, I don't know, be a more cohesive region. That's yeah. what I'd love to see. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting to go back to the anxiety and fear, like when we were thinking about it for the individual, like the storyteller from the first half hour, you know, we understood or we were hypothesizing that the farther he got away from the one experience he had of walking through the black neighborhood and being fine, the more the anxiety and fear would be stronger so that if he thought about doing it again, walking through the black neighborhood again, the the fear and anxiety could be too strong to overcome. Like this sense again, that we don't like to feel fear. We don't like to feel uncomfortable. We think it means like our brains tell us that's dangerous. And so you avoid it. Mm -hmm. Um, And to try to imagine like what, like how to translate, like I feel like if at an individual level you could coach or you could coax a person to sit with their discomfort stay uncomfortable like walk them through the courage required but like how do you do that uh, at a social level for communities that feels a little bit bigger of a challenge Mm -hmm. think of it like public speaking like that's gonna be painful every time until you just commit to it (laughs) yes well we're leaving you with a lot to think about that's it for today um thanks for listening Uh, And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And if you enjoyed the stories you heard today, you can find more stories like these on our website at welcomeproject.belbo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. 